This is the Futures Heritage Podcast. My name is Anki Petersen. And I'm Robin Hooks, and we are your hosts. In this episode of the Futures Heritage Podcast, we are talking with Carlota Marijuan Rodriguez, who is a master's student in architecture with a special interest in heritage, architecture and urban planning. She's currently doing an internship at the UNESCO headquarters in Paris, and she is also a vice president of the European Students Association for Cultural Heritage, also known by the acronym of ASEC. We will talk with Carlota about her work, uh, her interests, and also about uh, her experiences with how it is uh, to maintain a heritage network in times of COVID, which I can imagine uh, has some particular challenges of its own. But first, all news. In this segment, we talk about current heritage news that caught our eye over the last few weeks. So, Robin, what heritage news did catch your eye this week? I can't remember when exactly, but a couple of days ago, I, th- I saw it in so many news uh, outlets, like general news, but also more specialized heritage news uh, outlets on the discovery of basically two people who died in the volcanic eruption that destroyed Pompeii. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, to, so basically two new, it's difficult to call them like people because they're like the holes left by what once were people. So it's a bit confusing. Uh, we can't, you can't really say they found two skeletons because that's what not what was there anymore. And I have many opinions on this. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. So Pompeii was destroyed in um, 79 AD and was destroyed by a volcanic eruption from Mount Vesuvius. And in... A lot of the articles I found, the people were referred to as uh, a slave and his master, um, which archaeology is kind of a science of um, interpreting the past, obviously, but also kind of making uh, inferences from what you find that you can't necessarily always really kind of prove in quotation marks. But basically the reason they call one uh, a person of high status or the master uh, and the other his slave is that one uh, was aged between 18 and 23 and he had crushed vertebrae so his spine had kind of suffered as far as i know it wasn't uh, like trauma from the eruption itself but it was just uh, trauma from um, manual labor and then the other one was aged between 30 and 40 and they found traces of a woolen cloak around his neck or around or around his person basically that made archaeologists say well that was a wealthy man uh which is i think these are really difficult inferences to make basically because like yes it kind of makes it likely if someone has like crushed vertebrae that they did manual labor but then the jump to a slave is really sensitive i think it's quite a jump yeah, anyone between 18 and 23 in that time period could have had, like, a crushed vertebra. So it's, yeah. Um, and it, I think it kind of says something about how we view the Roman world. Of, so, like, we view the Roman society as, like, either the people we know from uh, from texts that were we still have from the Roman period. So, like, the, mm-hmm. both the writers themselves, notably Pliny, um, Pliny the Elder who died in the uh, in the eruption it, itself actually but like those kind of people Seneca uh, and like the generals like Julius Caesar the the, the emperor so like the the, the high ranking people and we know that there was slavery and that everybody else was a slave or something 
it kind of really, I think, says something that we need to have these categories that we affix to these two people because one might have done or probably did manual labor and the other one seemed to have uh, some sort of fancy cloak and then they're both and immediately we there's assumed that it was a slave and a man of high status which are both like really jumps i think yeah so it's kind of a simplified version of how roman society could have been yeah i think it says a lot about how we view or we think we know that society and then that goes like both and maybe not even for the archaeologist archaeologist because I'm going to guess there's a, a an archaeological publication of some sorts underneath it, this, uh, which is a slightly more nuanced, but then that gets picked up by like larger news outlets. I saw this news also. I saw it on the BBC. I saw it on our national news uh, in the Netherlands as well. Um, and then this kind of captures our attention uh, and they instantly become definitely a slave and definitely a wealthy individual. Uh, because for some reason that's how we understand or we think we know that that society was. So it's really interesting to see both like archaeological inferences, which may or may not be true, and then kind of meeting our view of that society. Yeah, meeting meeting the, those archaeological inferences, and then it kind of becomes a major news story. Also, I think because it's Pompeii, and Pompeii is also like always captures the imagination. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Of course, and also, and that's it's a that's a completely separate point. But I think in a in times where we are really careful of what we display in museums, etc., um, I think it's also kind of complicated to have people or cast of people who died in an eruption, which like they aren't lying peacefully on the floor. They were kind of like. Uh, they were cramped and stuff like that. They actually said that, yeah, that yeah, they yeah. could see like cramped hands and stuff. They were in a uh, state of distress. Yeah, and have those kinds of images circulate because it's we think about this, for example, in colonial context, in more like 18th, 19th century colonial context, we think about that a lot in like museums of how we display these people, or at least that's starting uh, to come more and more. Hmm. Um, while these were also like two people who, didn't necessarily die in a nice way. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I think it's always a bit difficult with those kinds of things to have their images like circulate. It's a bit of a bummer to end on, but. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's an interesting uh, discussion. Well, both the points that you made. Um, and, and maybe we view the Roman world as maybe, well, in a, in a more romanticized way. And especially the whole yeah. story of Pompeii and the, and, and the Vesuvius. Yeah, that's. Pompeii is really a touching stone as well. If there is any discovery which has kind of like uh, more remains than usual or something, it certainly is the Pompeii of that area or that country. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it's kind of it's confusing because Pompeii is a really unique situation. Yeah. And there's, there's almost no other archaeological context which can be uh, compared to that. And even then, like Pompeii, that wasn't a one-time eruption. That, that took place over a couple of days, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it also said in the article that the people actually survived the first eruption, but then died exactly, a day later yeah. because of uh, explosions, I think. Yeah, Yeah, the uh, pyroclastic flows is usually the uh, reason. Uh, uh, and yeah. that's usually the reason that these people are so well-preserved, because they're like these kind of flows of 
I don't know, magma and ash and super hot stuff, which kind of envelop these people and then immediately, almost immediately set, which provides these kind of voids of the body, kind of these like, um, negative blueprints of the body, which then can be filled with, uh, plaster when they find them. And then you get this kind of cast of a person, mm. which is, at the same time, really vivid because you can really see kind of sometimes the really the distress and um, yeah. on their faces or in their in their uh, in their posture. But yeah, um, it also makes it kind of complicated. Yeah, to see those kinds of things. It's not a nice picture to look at. No, and it's not like uh, I, I don't know if I. It's not like we can ask them permission. No, <laughs> no. Um, and not. it's it's really easy to say, well, they're more than 2,000 years dead and that's the end of it. So they don't get a say in this anymore. Or that's that that means we can do whatever we want. Because if you would do this in a colonial context, it's a really different story. Yeah. We wouldn't circulate pictures of mass graves from, I don't know, even the Second World War uh, massively uh, or without any warning or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, also the, the, the way in which um, uh, the news kind of reported about this or, or the people that were involved uh, in this this whole discovery reported about this is almost kind of like it's an artwork that they discovered. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of like embedded in the type of archaeology, like the classical archaeology really developed from looking for pieces of art. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true. Uh, so that might be kind of a remnant of that. But yeah, it was really interesting to see. And I always like to see like new archaeological news and archaeological news breaking into the mainstream news, because I think a lot of people who wouldn't normally see archaeological news like this saw this. Yeah. But it also always comes with, I think, a lot of caveats, uh, especially when it's like concerning human remains. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So far for... Old News. So let's get into our conversation with uh, Carlotta. Carlotta, can you tell us something about yourself? Uh, maybe a short introduction. Who are you? What do you do? Where do you live? What do you like? Um, yes, thank you. Hello. <laughs> um, my name is Carlotta and I'm an architect, I think, mostly. <laughs> I am from a small town in southern Spain and I think that defines me quite a bit because I, I, I grew up around goats and that's kind of a defining factor i think in a person's personality <laughs> interesting interesting goats um, <laughs> tell us more <laughs> stuff for another podcast I guess. yeah <laughs> but i think it, it, it does really tie like the, where i grew up it really ties to what i do now and my, my parents came from the big city and they decided to move to this kind of rural context where they could be in contact with nature, with the culture and so on. And so I always grew sort of appreciating the traditional culture of southern Spain and and this kind of thing. And then I, when I was 18, I moved to Australia where I studied architecture and where I worked for a while. And then I moved to Italy to do a master's degree, uh, which I'm about to finish. And now I'm in Paris, <laughs> so it's kind of a. Um, I don't. So I think about me. I like traveling. I like moving yeah. around quite a bit, uh, learning new languages, trying all the food. I've realized I'm really food motivated these days. I don't know if it's something that comes with age or with moving around. <laughs> um, lately, I've been more and more involved in. Uh, I think uh, civic associations and and kind of getting organized as with all the young people and with the things that I'm passionate about. I've always been volunteering 
ever, you know, since I was in high school, basically. So it's been quite a while. But uh, ever since last year, I've sort of been more involved in actually making the decisions, not just being a, a volunteer, but deciding what where I want this to go in a more yeah. active way. Nice. And uh, you you mentioned that you studied in Australia, so you moved on your own from Spain to Australia. Well, I, I to moved study? with my dad because he ah. got a job there. So it was gonna, uh, I was supposed to start university in Madrid, um, and like one month before, my dad was moving and was like, "Do you want to come with me?" I was like, "Sure." <laughs> so I went there and I worked in a coffee shop until I, you know, found that I could start uni there. And I, so it was kind of a, I think, a last minute decision that no one was planning but it was actually really really good I'm really glad I did it because it was you know I think that difference of going from a sort of a very secluded context to going to I moved to Brisbane which is a kind of a big city so over a million people and uh, different culture when you're just sort of like brand new with big eyes so it was I think one of the for sure one of the best decisions I've ever taken so That's yeah It's quite a contrast. Yeah, it's definitely quite a contrast. Like for the, you know, the first few months, I was like, "What is going on here?" <laughs> This is really quite different, especially the multiculturality. I think it was the mm. the thing that shocked me the most: the fact that people looked like, you know, all kinds of cultures and backgrounds, and and somehow this is not the kind of context where I come from. I come from a sort of a very Spanish traditional culture sort of thing. <laughs> So I think it was really good to be able to see this this variety that I hadn't seen in my hometown as much. Nice. Well, when you look at your experience in Australia and then you decided to move back to Europe, um, do, do you still have like these feelings for Australia as a country? Yes. Would you, would you consider going back as well, maybe? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, 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 I think so. I think also for the heritage part of it, I, because I, I got to work in, in heritage. I was in, doing some research projects at uni about 3D scanning. And then I got a job in the city council with heritage. And it was really amazing because being working in heritage in Australia forces you to rethink what you consider heritage in a way. Because it doesn't have the, you know, the big monuments that you can see in Europe and that maybe your mind traditional, like, automatically goes to. Um, mm -hmm. There, the heritage is more related to the heritage of like, everyday people. It's more like the sort of things that might not be artistically extraordinary, but it's sort of the the legacy of first of of, of the uh, indigenous cultures that have been there for you know thousands of years, and then of the just the everyday existence of uh, people who maybe were not the rich and powerful, who were convicts and who were not who were migrants, who were mm. not sort of the kind of people whose heritage is usually preserved. So I think this really forced me to rethink uh, what kind of heritage also I was considering back in, in my hometown and back in Spain, back in Europe. And I think it, it was really wonderful to see this. It really opened my, my eyes. And so I, I do think I would like to, I don't know, you know, it's kind of difficult to make decisions at this stage. I'm 25, but, <laughs> but, but I think I, I, I wouldn't be... I would, I would like to go back to Australia and to, to be more in contact because I think we can also learn... From this, from this point of view, yeah. Do you have an example from one of these things that maybe you came back to Europe and then saw something and was like, "Well, that's actually heritage as well," or that's something we as Europeans wouldn't treat as heritage, but coming from a kind of Australian heritage uh, frame of mind is. I think mostly things related to 
uh, I think social trends, things like social housing, industrialization, that maybe mm-hmm. are not again architecturally significant, but that there are millions of Europeans that lived in world like post World War Two housing, and that maybe we are not recognizing these as as the importance that it had for for the way that you know the social states developed and these these buildings and these they they do reflect this part so i think that's probably a one of the right, most obvious examples example. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well it's a good framework of reference to have if you if you look around in europe i think things are changing but still there's a very much a focus on our classic like 19th century way of considering heritage, uh, looking yeah. at these uh, big moments, big monuments, etc. And of things uh, that are beautiful. That I mean, I'm an architect, I love things that are beautiful, but it's not the only value. That there are things that are significant mm. and that are relevant and are important for people, even if, you know, you might not consider them traditionally beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So, so when it comes to work, uh, you already uh, uh, mentioned a bit that you are now focusing on how to make an impact uh, and how young people can make an impact and also how they uh, not only uh, engage themselves with volunteering, but the way in which they can be engaged by having a seat at the table, so to say. Yeah. Uh, can, can you tell us a bit more about this and, and uh, maybe the projects or, or the organizations uh, that you are working uh, with on this topic? Well, actually, I started, I think, getting to know about this when I met you, Anki, which was in Athens with Europa Nostra last year through the Futurist Heritage. Ah, yeah, um, yeah. And then uh, I was also involved in ESAC, which is the European Students Association for Cultural Heritage. I went to their um, general meeting and I really loved because it was really student organized, deciding what they wanted to talk about and really having a super broad perspective that I hadn't seen in my university background. My master's is on kind of architecture and conservation sort of thing, but it was still very much by architects for architects, you know, sort of a very narrow understanding of discipline. And, And what I saw in this in this association, in this meeting, was that, you know, young people were already challenging this a lot. And they were already saying, look, I am an architect and I can learn from archaeologists and art historians and we can work together on different projects. And I think that was brilliant. So I got really involved in in ESSEC and created, sort of helped to create a, a local branch in my university in Italy. And then became more and more involved. And now uh, we are... Uh, I'm kind of engaged in the committee and we are working with Europa Nostra and with Europeana as well, who are trying to develop uh, programs to engage more young people and to try to see how the heritage sector can be more welcoming and more, um, yeah, more open, I think as well, which is the, is the key is that sometimes the, the heritage sector has a pretty big a pretty big wall, a kind of a fence around it. Once you jump it, you're okay. But it's kind of imposing to get into. It's hard to break. I think I kind of get the the, the general idea of what you're saying. But when you say there's a, a wall, what's that wall made of? I think it's a bit of a mix. Um, I think part is... Uh, uh, there are several walls. There's a wall between different regions of Europe. There's a wall between the educated and the less educated. There's a wall that is kind of cultural as well. There's uh, also just the fact that uh, usually people who work and are engaged in the cultural field 
usually come from less disadvantaged backgrounds that they are, have been able to afford to go to university to do long periods of study. So it's so there are several social and cultural factors that mean that heritage is, is not a very open field. And also uh, in terms of, I think, people whose heritage is being reflected, who feel themselves reflected in the heritage are more likely to be involved in it. So for instance, uh, new citizens or uh, people who with diverse cultural backgrounds are less represented also, and I think to a certain extent, because their heritage is not being included. Yeah, I can imagine that it's also a, a wall uh, that that kind of sustains itself uh, mm-hmm. with well the people that are working in the field of cultural heritage. It's well maybe a natural thing, of course, to uh, engage with the people that you know and and include the people that you know from your profession. But uh, it might be still a very closed society in that sense. That yeah. um, it's it's a hard for. Uh, yeah, younger people or, or people from different areas of work uh, to enter. Yeah, and it's true that it relies a lot on personal connections. I think even my internship at UNESCO, it was mostly through personal connections and personal recommendations. And I think even like at this stage, it's it is still it, it, this is contributing to the fact that there is a wall, there is a secret wall that maybe just someone who was not able to attend this networking event or to meet these, these people, they will not have the same opportunities as, for instance, I did. Yeah, exactly. But that's, of course, also where ASAC jumps in, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, that is what yeah. we want to first to create a, a platform to communicate and to network where it's, it's open to everybody and you, we can share and we can build skills together. And we can also create opportunities and to tie in, for instance, we just launched the internship program, which is with Europa Nostra, which everyone can apply to. And that is, we are really trying to get things that are, you know, open and accessible and to try to address some of these issues that we see regarding access and disciplines. And there are some things we still have to work on. I am, I think paid internships and decently paid internship emphasis on decently are a huge thing we need to work on because it's the moment we have weird expectation in the cultural heritage sector that people have to work for free for one or two years or or for you know ridiculous amounts of money for one or two years you're already you know removing the opportunity from being in the sector to a huge sector just so many people that will never be able to afford to do this yeah, that's really a filter for the more privileged. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. For for the privileged, for those who can afford it, for those who are already in cities, for instance, I don't know, who, who have mm, access yeah. to these opportunities. And I think this is something that, at least from ESAC, we want to work on and to try to, to change this as much as we can. And our internship is paid. It's not minimum wage. It's less than this. And I think we, with time, we will try to make sure that we we get to this point where at least you know the the minimum is that when you get an internship you have a minimum wage that you can support yourself yeah but this is a first step that you're taking yeah but this is a first step we managed to get at least with, with the support of Europa Nostra because again we are all like also Europa Nostra and Europeana and and we are non-for-profit organizations that we are sort of relying on donations and trying to make things work so if we are just and maybe part of a, of a bigger movement that can move towards this change. Yeah. Um, 
I think that's that's already a big step. <laughs> Just to be clear, what is the internship exactly that you uh, now created with Europa Nostra? It's a position that is for precisely for youth in, to create a program for youth involvement, joining different European programs like the uh, Europa Nostra ESAC, the European Heritage Tribune, and to create some kind of like a networking platform and a, a set of activities of training, capacity building and so on. Um, and part of this is an intern, which will work in the development of, of this program with all the different actors. And I think this is important to actually have a young person who is in charge and who can be really deciding. So it's not always people in their 50s deciding what young people will do. <laughs> so, so I think it's a really exciting opportunity. And we're really super thankful for Europa to actually support this and, and give the possibility for someone who is a student to be even, you know, three days a week working on developing this kind of network. And so I think it's uh, the applications are open now and will close in a couple of weeks. And we're hoping we can start the internship uh, in January. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's a crucial difference between, let's say, old people, but not young people <laughs> deciding what young people want to do and young people deciding what young yeah, people yeah, want to do. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really in different. Terms of areas, of course, yeah. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. And about walking walking the talk. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. from the perspective of European also, you mean, or at least from the heritage organizations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah because they really have been very supportive and very open to, to also working in maybe less uh, strict ways. Like ESAC, for instance, we have the problem of not being legally recognized because I don't know if you know, but European associations have a problem with it being you have to be registered in one country you cannot be a european mm. kind of thing so because oh. our members are sort of spread across all the countries we don't have in one country enough people to register in this place it, like i think for big institutions it would be easy to say sorry we can't help you you know you're just a bunch mm. of kids but actually yeah. they're not doing this they're saying okay we recognize there's a problem let's try to to get you settled to get you set up and I think also from for the experience of ESAC has been really interesting because, and I'm going to just jump into a kind of a COVID, which is a different topic, but I think COVID has been instrumental in making ESAC stronger because the fact that we are separated physically has forced people to be more engaged virtually. And so mm. what was initially a small team of five people. We are now 12 people in the coordination committee and we are meeting more regularly and we can do more programs. And every time we want to do something, there's always people who want to collaborate, who want to have their their input, who want to really participate to a level that I think in the three years that ESAC has existed has never been like this. So I think that in this sense, um, I think it will last after covid is gone because we are, I think everyone who is involved, we are really very happy with being able to connect with, with different people and with the, with the work that we are creating, with the projects that we are running. So, but it's been interesting. It's interesting it has had such a positive effect. It's been it's wild. It's something we, we hear a lot. That I don't know to a certain extent if coronavirus hadn't happened, if we would be where we are today <laughs> because this mm. year has been really good for us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, against everyone else and a pandemic but for us it's been yeah. good <laughs> against yeah, yeah. the odds yeah. the pandemic has offered a lot of opportunities for you instead of uh, 
yeah, difficulties. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's 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 definitely going to be an exception in that. In like, it's such a positive. Uh, I think it, a lot of uh, institutions and stuff took out like positive things. Mm-hmm. But in general, but if I hear you now, that's but it's so positive. I wouldn't have expected that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's maybe a logical consequence. People are trying mm. to find each other, and now they are trying to find each other online. And maybe now you also have the the time to show everyone who is getting involved what the value is of mm. ASEC and what the value is of online meetings because because everyone everybody is making time from the for them now. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder how much it will you know it will stay in our in our habits to attend I don't know how many webinars you guys have attended but I've attended like thousands of them like yes. I'm an expert now <laughs> yeah was it also maybe that the fact that you were in a Europe or you are in a European organization and were already kind of dispersed across Europe but doing something together and made that the, the transition to basically the digital COVID society easier I think in Essex specifically, it was necessary because we were scattered, but there hadn't been until this year the transition to actually, we are scattered, but we were meeting once a year physically. Mm. And that was mostly okay. the the, col- the only collaboration was to do a book which and to do a physical meeting. So during, you know, 12 months of the year, there was not that much contact between the different groups. Ah, right. So I think this was a big change this year and it's something that has definitely so probably already having this this base did make it easy make it easier at the beginning to to sort of think okay we already have this base we know we can run these events we know we we have the people so in that sense yes it it made it easier but it was also sometimes hard to convince people that we, we would still have relevant content that it would still be yeah. Um, not just a, a social media trend or something like this, that this is still a legit kind of academic or researcher, that we, we still want to to have actual good content besides what is popular or what is liked. Because I think this was a concern at the beginning by s- some of the members who were more used to traditional meetings of going together to the library or so on, or doing a conference or doing a book. But I think at the end we've managed to do a bit of both. Like we'll, we're still planning to do a physical meeting next year if we can. We st- we're still doing a book. We are just doing more things that also people who cannot physically travel or cannot contribute to this can still attend. So you can yeah. have both. You don't have to choose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just to clarify a little bit about ASEC, it's a student network. What does the organization look like? How can also... People who are listening to this podcast and think like, oh, this sounds interesting. How, how can people join ASAC? The, the organization is run by a coordination committee, which we are basically a bunch of volunteers. And each person has a task and we work together and we do Skype every now and then to coordinate the different activities that we do. And it's usually done by people who are interested and they haven't, you know, we see the that they are motivated. We have a chat and we're like, okay, let's join. You know, this person <laughs> seems interesting. We do need someone else. So it's kind of a, a very informal way to do it. And in fact, in the last couple of months, we've had a lot of people who were interested. So we have added a lot of people to the team. And <laughs> But otherwise we have like the, the bigger family, which is all the, all the different members that 
contributing. We have the ESAC talks, which are uh, kind of like a webinar. <laughs> 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 but, it's a, but it's with presentations from students and recent graduates about their work, their personal projects, their university projects, or, or whatever they, they want to present on. And this, this is quite popular. We do get quite a, a few people of the members that participate in this. And we also have the blog in the European Heritage Tribune. And this is open to everybody who can join. Just go on the website and, you know, you have to sort of fill in a basic data. I think either you can put a motivation letter or um, put a CV that shows you are, you know, generally interested. And, <laughs> and that's basically it. So it's quite, uh, quite an easy process. It's based on interest, I think, which is, is the, the difference. Because this is also something that I think makes ESSAC different from, for example, ECOMOS Young Professionals, that they, we don't require you to have a reference, to have a particular degree, to have a particular study. We don't even require you to be you know, a university, whatever, like as long as you, you have a, a genuine interest to, to work and to learn more about cultural heritage, you're welcome not that difficult <laughs> nice is that and i'm going to tie this into the question that you asked you although he didn't know yet <laughs> in the last episode which was uh how can higher heritage organizations organize themselves to reflect the society they serve is that that like no demand for being uh, a particular type of uh, student or de- but just the general interest that being the demand to be to to be able to become a member of ESAC is that part, part of that as well? I think so yeah I think that's a big one because I was thinking about this question before and I think sometimes asking people based on their skills and their motivations instead of their qualifications would be a good way to go for starters mm. and the same way also we do it as like not relying on personal connections, but having a clear procedure for everybody online. You don't need to know somebody to know about this. It's for, you know, <laughs> the information is clear for, for everything. <laughs> yes, open access. Yeah, exactly. Can you speak to like maybe the more general aspect of the question? Uh, not particularly ASAC, yeah. but for, more, for other organizations? I think we uh, have... Organizations. We have already talked about this a little bit when we were talking about the wall mm-hmm. about some specific issues related to culture economic status uh, education and so on so i think addressing these these barriers first i think to represent the society you have to actually accept all the members of the society to be a part of it to work so to for example removing unpaid internships uh, making sure that hiring processes are are open and not relying on personal connections that's just a big start I think. And then on the other hand, for bigger institutions, I think even in ESSEC, we rely on volunteers a lot because people, when they are passionate about something, they want to be involved and they want to give their voice and they there is a huge will to, to be involved in, the, in decision-making and so on. So I think big institutions can do more by establishing committees of maybe of a community engagement of volunteers that have a, at some degree of decision-making. But for people who are not necessarily hired by this institution, especially if it's a bigger institution, I think it could still, you know, it could be a way to to make sure that the decisions of the wider society are reflected. And the, to diversify the uh, um, the institution itself or the organization itself. Yeah, so to diversify the, the organization themselves, but even, even once that is achieved, to still keep um, some level of decision-making for people who are not inside of the institution necessarily. 
and have like a local group do something and know that they can come to uh, your heritage organization for sport for yes. example yes for instance or that even if you yeah. if you have a, I'm talking this is like a municipal level heritage organization that is the one and I'm, I know this or UNESCO but anyway but at a municipal <laughs> level like it's I think it would be useful to have because there's usually a heritage committee which is made by experts but there is no community heritage committee yeah. made by you know everyday members of the community this could be an easy way that to to include them yeah. and not only for votes but also in actual decision making <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly yeah and and it's it's about both having like this more open attitude towards well everyone basically and also about uh, maybe willing to give up your own position a little bit you know as a heritage expert that you accept that other people can also be experts uh, the same or in different ways about yeah. heritage and also maybe create space for people to to enter with their own ideas and then mm. try to facilitate them instead of trying to control them. Yeah, mm. and I think heritage is so subjective at the end of the day that we need to acknowledge that even an heritage expert doesn't have the absolute truth, you know, <laughs> that there's still uh, a value of emotional attachment, of the significance of uh, identity, that an expert will not be able to to have a like their opinion of the expert in this item in this in these issues is not worth more than that of just a you know just a person who lives there <laughs> because it's a, it's about more than a technical issue sometimes i think yeah there are different aspects mm. i'd say yeah because the the expert does know knows things that like local inhabitants might not know but he yeah. might not he or she might not have the emotional attachment like you say to uh, a particular i don't know monument or whatever it may be so they can can be complementary but that kind of asks a lot from the uh, the expert as well because yeah. it's like you said anki kind of giving away some of your not necessarily authority but your, your expertise yeah and and allowing other people into your world so to say yeah but i can this is i'm doing this is part of the project that i'm doing with my thesis which i still haven't submitted but i'm working on this i did it in my hometown because it's kind of easier and i went to ask everybody about their opinions on heritage and what they want to do and so on and it was for me it was amazing because i realized how much i was focusing on certain parts that maybe as an architect i preferred more Whereas, for instance, people were actually, well, why are you only asking about the buildings? What we really like is the music. And, what we, you know, we should be preserving the spaces where music is, is kept because there's sort of like the a traditional kind of music that is really disappearing. And that if there's no the spaces for it to happen, it will not, it will probably not make it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it was something that, that I think really there's so much value in actually including uh, everyday citizens and residents because it really allows us to go beyond our limitations as a single person and as an expert with a point of view do you think and this is something i think i spoke to or i asked questions about maybe even all our guests uh, but do you think the <laughs> label so to say of heritage do you think that scares away some people because in my day job i kind of find that there there are, i think are a lot of communities who do things which we would say yes that's heritage but they themselves don't see that as heritage or they don't like 
they it, it isn't their frame of mind to think of it as heritage. Uh, but at the same time, heritage in itself, at least, but that might be a Dutch thing. I'm not entirely sure whether that's a European thing. Always has this kind of elitist idea of monuments and like pretty buildings and stuff like that. Yeah, and dusty stuff. <laughs> right? That's specific. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think maybe it does depend on the language as well and the word that is employed mm. in each of the languages. Because in yeah. in Spanish we say patrimonio, and I would say patrimonio is is also closely tied with the intangible, which is maybe why in Spain when I was doing my thesis, people did come up with music and dance and things like this when I was doing my thesis on architecture. <laughs> so maybe actually language is a key reason why this limitation exists of the way that this word is is used. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, could could be. I mean, if if yeah. I look at a Dutch word, at least I associate it a lot with well things that I inherit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and I associate things that I inherit with with tangible stuff. Yeah. You know, the old couch of my grandmother or something. Yeah, and also like heirlooms in the sense of like well, maybe not the old couch of your <laughs> grandfather, but, <laughs> but you know things that are like a ring or or. or uh, I don't know something that's been in the family for many years yeah. and which usually tends to be like jewelry or stuff like that yeah could be a couch might be a couch but yeah <laughs> <laughs> no your example is better yeah <laughs> i think in this in spanish it, it's a very old word for inheritance so the fact that it's an old word means its original meaning is kind of lost a little bit mm. so it's created a new meaning for itself in the past few years I think hmm, I hadn't thought yeah. about this. Yeah. <laughs> we, we might need a linguist or a historical linguist for this yeah, because yeah. I think heritage in in Dutch also starts as stuff people ha- like a literal inheritance of people originally, yeah. although nobody calls it that anymore. Yeah. But the good thing is we have the capacity to change these. That language is something true, that if true. we use heritage in other contexts, then people will accept this yeah. as the meaning no, of, yeah. of heritage. So that's very that's very true as yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> that is very true. Well, if I connect the question that we just discussed to your work with ASAC, if you could, you know, dream out loud and position ASAC uh, in as a heritage organization that that is really doing this effort to include everyone and to be as open as possible and have this open access uh, programs, what would you like ASAC to be in the future? I think mostly more of the same, but a bit more stable. <laughs> because at the moment it still requires a lot of of effort from everybody to keep it running. So I think we have the principle going ahead, but the, the principle is right. We need to be more stable and organized, I would say, so that also we can, we can have a stronger voice and we can assert our ideas more you know, confidently. (laughs) Because this is, I think, something that we are debating. Because on the one hand, we could become more institutionalized. And so this would make our lives easier because we wouldn't have to be always depending on external people to give us a little bit of money to run a project to do like every time we have to do something we have to ask. It's like we're it's really a not very stable system. But on the other hand, being like this means we are completely independent. We can choose the programs we want to do. We can choose who we invite to with the talks. We can choose absolutely everything. It's a freedom and it's also a difficulty. So I think 
we will have to manage this quite carefully in the future. And so in the future, I would like to see strong partnerships, but with partners that still give us this, this freedom that is still a student-run organization. And that, that carries on with, like, obviously the, the kind of the, the people that organize everything will change over the coming years. Of course, yeah. I mean, uh, because I, that's the, that's the point. That, we, we, yeah, exactly. And then the, a kind of stable basis help, also helps kind of ferment that when one person goes who might have done a lot of work, then the whole st- thing collapses. But yeah. you get a kind of smooth handover. Uh, I was I was going to say smooth transition of power, but that's a, that's, <laughs> that's a weird. <laughs> I mean, like this year, um, the president was is Marius, who was kind of the founder, and he wanted to retire this year, and we didn't let him. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so he's still he's still in his PhD, but. But I think, yeah, we, we do need some stability because, for instance, like the moment he goes, we were all like, what are we going to do now? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the really the creative capacity of the people that are involved is so big that I have, I don't necessarily have an idea of the, the programs that I want to do, but I know they will exist and that with time mm. there will be new things yeah. that will replace the other programs and it will still be just because they really are amazing people with every time like every few months it's like why don't we do this and like oh yeah that's a great idea you know like <laughs> so it's always like these i'm not scared about this <laughs> no well and what i really like about asac is um uh, from experience i know that it's uh, sometimes difficult to find you know the right balance between on the one hand waiting for funding to come so that you can properly do stuff and also uh, you know, pay your rent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also really nice just to go ahead and do stuff and create this energy and then also the attention and maybe the funding will come. Mm. Uh, so are you going to be, you know, proactive uh, mm. and, and just uh, see what you can create with the little means that you have or are you going to wait for funding? And I think the you know, the proactiveness of ASAC is really uh, inspiring to see. Thank you. <laughs> it does feel like we're a bunch of kids sometimes. Sometimes it feels like this, <laughs> but motivated bunch of kids. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> well, that's the most important part, I think. You know, just go where the energy is. Yeah, and I think if you feel like a bunch of kids in ten years, that's be fu- that's fine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good quality. That's good quality there. So long as you don't stifle the next uh, generation of kids, of course. Yeah. Uh, and 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 keep them from uh, from doing their job. Very interesting. Um, I think to close off slowly, what's your question for next guest? Well, I would like to hear their thoughts on how people and like individuals and also organizations can increase uh, youth involvement and can promote young people being involved in heritage. And I mean, if they don't think this is necessary, they should explain why. <laughs> <laughs> That's also and I will fight them. <laughs> <laughs> you, you will come to their Data. homes. Yes. <laughs> cool. Yeah, interesting. Obviously, it really connects with what Fish is and what you uh, as Isaac are, are as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for now and for your time and your ideas for what you do with Isaac and for everyone at Isaac for what they are doing. Well, and thank you for having me. I'm I'm super happy to be here and, and to hear your your thoughts as well. So it's 
super enjoyable. Yeah. Also, thank you for giving the platform as well to talk about ESAC and to maybe get to reach out to other people that maybe they didn't know about us. Because I think it's it's great to be collaborating. We, we have the similar ideas, so it's we have to stick together. Yeah. <laughs> This yes. I really believe in. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, thank you for what you're doing. It's I think it's really an amazing podcast, an amazing project that you guys are developing. So, yeah, thank you. Ah, you're welcome. That's nice <laughs> oh, to hear. <laughs> And we will make sure to... Um, put some contact information about ASAC in the show notes of our podcast. So if oh, anyone yeah. uh, who is listening is interested in uh, getting into contact. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was the Future is Heritage podcast. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast channels. Links can be found in the show notes. This podcast is supported by Dutch Culture, Center for International Cooperation.